Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In the 18th century, death stalked early Americans like a predator hunting its prey. In Virginia, as in other colonies, death made children orphans and wives widows, making a precarious existence all that much more challenging. For the Virginia elite, death also created opportunities for widows and widowers alike to protect their interests, their property, and their social standing through advantageous remarriages. But the predator's teeth never dulled, and when it took another life, some Virginians, like Mary Washington, turned to devotional texts for comfort and for the strength to press onward. Historians have not looked favorably on George Washington's mother over the past few decades, finding her to be difficult, stubborn, and often a drag on her more famous son. Yet as today's guest tells us, those observations take their cue from George himself and ignore the full shape of her life, one in which death was a constant companion. Dr. Martha Saxton joins me today to discuss her new book, The Widow Washington, The Life of Mary Washington. Dr. Saxon is a professor of history, women's, and gender studies emerita at Amherst College. And as you'll hear, books like Matthew Hale's Contemplations, Moral and Divine, offered Mary Washington solace in a world in which death was very much part of life. So let's grieve with the widow Washington with Martha Saxton. Martha, thanks very much for taking the time to come back and talk with us again. I know you were on the uh, you were on the live stream program uh, last summer when we did the Martha Washington lecture, talking about Mary Ball Washington. But I was eager to have you come on this show to dive deeper into the book you wrote, and so I appreciate the fact that you are humoring us again for a second time. And I thought we might begin our journey by actually doing a little bit of a sketch of Mary Ball Washington's life itself. As we'll talk about, most people know her through her more famous son, but she, of course, had a life of her own. And and, uh, I thought we might start with that life itself, and then we can use that as a window into the process of writing your book and what you found and how you were trying to resituate Mary Washington on her own terms in the 18th century world in which she lived. She's actually a wonderful example of 18th century life because she lived almost the entire 18th century. She was born in 1708 or 1709 to a somewhat unusual couple. Her father was a very wealthy widower, a slave-owning and land-owning man named Joseph Ball, who had married a woman who apparently was an indentured servant. It's not entirely clear who Mary's mother was, but that's the best thinking of contemporary genealogists who've done massive work on this. So Mary Johnson may have been Joseph Ball's housekeeper, a widow in her 30s and a very capable woman. She met Joseph Ball and they were married. She already had two children and he already had several. And Mary was the product of of their brief marriage. When Mary was about three years old, her Father Joseph died. He left in his will three enslaved boys to marry and two plots of land on the Rappahannock River that would become quite valuable. So she was orphaned, orphaned being a child who has no father. She was orphaned at three, um, but left relatively wealthy. Her mother went on to marry again, a man who also died quite soon. And when Mary was 12, both her mother and her stepbrother died leaving Mary a true orphan in the gravest sense of of the word. She was not alone in this. This was a generation that saw enormous waves of death. White and and Africans and African-Americans were dying in Virginia in enormous numbers. But just because the trauma was collective, it doesn't mean that it didn't have profound psychological 
implications for everyone who suffered in that in that generation. She was fortunate in having an older half-sister of whom she was enormously fond, apparently grew fonder, a half-sister named Elizabeth, who was just setting up her own home. And Mary, at 12, began to help her sister and help run the household and help take care of her sister's babies as she began to have them. And so she grew up in making herself enormously useful to this step-relative who fortunately for her was very, was very, very good to her. When Mary was 22, she met probably for the first time, but one doesn't know, Augustine Washington, who was recently widowed himself, a, a, a widower with three children. He was the friend of Mary's legal guardian, George Eskridge, who lived very close to where Mary was then living with her sister. Eskridge was an in-law of Augustine's, and he obviously thought this was a pretty good match for Augustine, who who desperately needed somebody to look after his plantations and his youngest daughter, who was still in the colonies while his older sons were in school in, in Great Britain. So Mary and Augustine were married, and George, who was their first of five five surviving children, was born in 1732. They moved a couple of times during their married years. And as I said, Mary, Mary and Augustine ended up having five children. She had one, one daughter who died. Mary's life with Augustine didn't last that long. When George was 11 and Mary had been married about 12 years, Augustine died, leaving her a widow with five very young children. Both of Augustine's oldest sons, Lawrence and Augustine, or Austin as they called him, claimed their inheritance, inheritances, which were large plantations that Augustine had had. So her income was suddenly drastically reduced. The ironworks that Augustine had been working on and had a, had a share of were also went to Lawrence. She was trying to raise these children in very, very reduced circumstances. Uh, George remembered when he was about 15, that these were the poorest years of his life. He'd never experienced anything, anything like this. And there's a famous story of him not being able to go to a party because he had no corn to feed his horse. Mary's goal for her children was to keep them associated with the elite circles in which her marriage to Augustine had put them in. And she worked very hard to do that with very, very few resources. She managed to sort of scrape together educations for her children. She got George, although he couldn't do what his father had imagined, she, he, he couldn't go to school in England. He trained as a surveyor, which was a money-making and a, a prestigious job, rather like being a lawyer. And her children all did exactly what she had done, which is to marry, to marry up. And George married, in a way, the uppest of them all by marrying the wealthiest widow in Virginia, Martha Custis. Mary and George's relationship, she worried very much about his health because his health was in these years rather poor. He had smallpox and then he had a variety of what seemed to have been respiratory uh, issues. He also had dysentery and one thing and another. And he also had something that he, he did not tell his mother exactly in these words, but he had something he told his brother was an inclination to arms. And she was not. Uh, an admirer of the military profession. And uh, so they had some conflict over his exposing himself to further danger when she was already worried about, about his health. The Seven Years' War put a bit of a strain on their relationship for that reason. As a widow all by herself, she led an increasing, with her kids married, uh, she led an increasingly frugal life. She'd always been frugal, but she sort of continued that pattern 
and really became in a way out of step with her children in the sense that they were participating very enthusiastically in the consumer revolution that was going on in in Virginia at this time. The, The British were sending over were manufacturing and sending over more and more delightful commodities that could be purchased, and the kids were buying them up. And Mary was not doing that. It's just she she simply didn't move into the uh, sort of conspicuous consumption circle that all of her children were in. And in some ways, that put her at a disadvantage. I think it particularly put her at a disadvantage with George and Martha because she was not. She began to be more and more, in their terms, uh, sort of unpresentable. She didn't. She didn't dress up. She wasn't, uh, you know, fancy. And she also didn't make a kind of new, uh, sort of an emerging kind of genteel small talk that she had more uh, solemn, I think, and, and profound issues on her mind as well as very practical ones. And those were the kinds of things that she that she talked about. Augustine's will put her in a rather difficult position financially because it was stingy with her. It left her only what she came with to the marriage, basically the same lands and and the same number of enslaved people that she had brought with her to the marriage. And it also asked that she leave the home she was in within five years, which would be at George's majority, and build herself a little house. She tried to get some wood from her brother, her half-brother in England, and he said, no, but you can have all the stones you want. She sort of gave up on that plan. And also George was living in Mount Vernon at this point and didn't seem to need that house very much. So she stayed on, but it became in a way an irritant, I think, between them because she was essentially as a widow, illegitimately claiming something that was legally, rightfully belonged to her firstborn son. She lived on at the farm and increasingly George became irritated with requests that she made to him of quite small amounts of money, small in terms of what he was giving his other uh, siblings and other members of the family. It seemed to be a combination of the fact that he was irritable about her staying on at the farm. She wasn't making a, a go of it. And she was asking for these sums of money while he was himself into very, very great debt. And the tension between or among all of these different different factors created conflict between them such that at a certain point he simply decided he was going to buy her a house in town and make the farm she was living on much more profitable because he would run it himself. So he did that and she was content to move into Fredericksburg where she spent the last years of her life. She um, endured the revolution. I wouldn't say she enjoyed any part of it. She endured it coming out the other side of it. She continued to go out and visit her farm. She continued to try to be a useful person. She continued to be frugal. And after George became our first president, shortly thereafter, she contracted breast cancer and she died in 1789. Why was it that she was so resistant to the military and and war? Her children and her stepchildren are very much involved in first British Imperial War, and then, of course, the American Revolution. What what was it about those two things, which were kind of a daily fact of life in the empire in the 18th century? Why did that trouble her? I'm not entirely sure, but the first time you see her sort of confronted with military activity up pretty much up close, although it wasn't at all up close, was was when Lawrence is in the Caribbean. Her step eldest stepson is in the Caribbean. He's in the 
army, but he's on a ship in the Caribbean and he's uh, fighting with the British and he's writing these letters home about how horrible the conditions are, how men are dying like flies from disease, how war is much worse than you ever thought it was. And, and she's watching her husband and her son, George, go, wow, that's really so interesting and great. I like that. I think this is where she really develops a kind of a horror and distaste. It's also true that the British Navy was often stopping in, in Virginia and leaving off sick members of the Navy to be nursed there. And there were lots and lots and lots of them. So she would have known about that was going on in Norfolk, in Norfolk, Virginia and other places. Fielding Lewis, her later, later her son-in-law, his father, John Lewis, was with her in this, in this thinking that Lawrence was crazy to be in the military. This is just a, a, a terrible idea. He should be home running a farm. And that was Mary's feeling all along that it was recklessly wasting your life, exposing yourself to danger. And I think George made things worse when he was in the early stages of the Seven Years' War. He was writing these letters home, not just to his brothers, but also to his mother about how great it was to be shot at and what fun he'd had and how many musket balls had gone through his cloak and how many horses had been shot at from under him and how exhilarating it was. I mean, that would make any mother nuts, I think. Well, one of the things you said was, uh, is it reflective in the book? The fact that later in life, George becomes very irritated with her over the questions of money. But interestingly enough, historians have taken that irritation and used that to diagnose their relationship writ large and to also come up with a, a portrait of Mary that... I gather you would argue doesn't really necessarily fit with reality. Historians initially, when George when George first died, he was the sainted president, and she was the sainted mother of the sainted president. And although they sometimes got the details wrong, they were very enthusiastic about about Mary. And then that started to change in the, in the post Civil War period. Historians, I think, to some degree, reflecting changes in the way people were thinking about psychology and biography. People no longer look to biography as sort of a description of the unfolding or unflowering of innate character. So George was no longer just born perfect. He was somebody who had to be, who was influenced. And when you start looking at, it, at influences, the big victim often is the mother because she usually doesn't match up to what biographers <laughs> want for, for the mothers of their, of their subjects. The other thing is that Mary was an incredibly plastic figure because there's so little evidence that actually remains. It seems as if Martha Washington probably, when she made a big sweep of the archives after George's death, probably got rid of a lot of stuff. There are a few, there are a few remaining letters that actually are quite achingly sweet and sad from, from Mary. They're not the letters of a tyrant or a nasty person, but they are very, very few. And what, what remain are George's many, many justifications of himself as a dutiful son, as a, as a good man, as a man who didn't know what was, sort of didn't know what was going on with his mother when she was suffering. But throughout, there's also the sense that he, that historians have taken him Absolutely. You know, that this is George Washington who never could tell a lie. How could he possibly tell a lie? So he always claimed that she couldn't possibly be suffering. She couldn't possibly have any money problems. And yet he knew himself with the biggest plantation in, in Virginia was deeply in debt. And he knew and said over and over 
that it was impossible to actually make a profit. You were always cash poor and you were always, always running low if you were a farmer in Virginia. So there's this kind of remarkable conflict. And there's, there's also the sense that historians never sort of compared or looked at what she actually was living on. The fairy farm was notoriously worn out from too much tobacco, too much growing of tobacco. Her circumstances were enormously reduced. No, nobody ever bothered to point that out after, after she was widowed. You know, the notion that she couldn't possibly have had any needs at the same time that George is arguably the richest man in, in Virginia, this disparity somehow never seemed to challenge historians to think a little further about what was going on here. So, so that's part of an answer to your question. That leads us then into the question of sources, because as you just said, not a lot of her personal papers survives. And so how did you go about reconstructing her life? What kinds of uh, things were you finding in the archives, but also in the toolkit to flesh out a portrait of her life that we didn't really have before? The early years, I used the Lancaster County records. The Ball family, that was her, her father's family, was immensely litigious, and they just sued each other all the time about everything. They sued for small things, large things, medium things. They punched each other. And in any case, it was, you know, they were splashed all over the records. And at least three of them at a time, two to three of them at a time were on the bench, were justices of the peace. So these are really well-documented stories. So that part of her, that half of her family was not exactly easy to trace. And you don't really get a full-on picture of Mary, but you do get a picture of the people she came from and the people, particularly her half-brother, Joseph with whom she maintained a relationship throughout her life. He's this kind of uh, self-satisfied, hectoring, older authority figure, um, always telling her what to do. But it, it is interesting, and, and it does give you a window into the kinds of, kind of advice she was getting and, and, and the kind of lead she was taking from uh, this man, important man in her family. There are little snatches of information about the Eskridges, who were their neighbors, their snatches of information about her half-sister, Elizabeth Johnson, who married Samuel Bonham, about their children, about their wills, about you, 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 just, you just go anywhere you can for any little scrap. When she marries Augustine, it's not so much better because Augustine really is, is an enigma as well in many ways. He, he left very little. What's left are property records and wills and, and uh, all of the, the things that you do tend to find in, in Virginia if, if, they're, if they're still there. But once George starts taking an interest in record keeping, which is early, he, start, he starts, the first time he mentions his mother is when she's lent him some money and he's paid it back for ribbons when he goes into town for her. But he keeps account books and then he starts writing other things. And eventually, as George's material becomes the most important source of uh, my information about her, but his letters have to be read so carefully, of course, because they're one side and a very, very particular side of a very complicated story. The other thing that was immensely helpful to me was the large amount of social history and economic history that's been done on Virginia in the last 20 or 30 years. It's just remarkable material that helps you understand what women's lives were like, what the lives of enslaved people were like how they lived together, how they how they conflicted, how, and family economies as well. So yes, the lives of women, but also the men who had power over them, the men who didn't have power over them, and so on. So 
so you can plot much better the geography of what of what her her life was like you you never i never got what you desire as a biographer which is sort of the inside consciousness of this person you never get close very close to that except through the last source which i'll mention which are the devotional books that she read that were so important to her she had she had four and she read them over and over and over again she taught from them she taught her children from them those really do i think give you a pathway into her psychology because religion before we had psychology we had religious ways of of thinking about our our activities and our feelings i'd love to dive into those devotional texts in just a moment but to do so, I thought we might talk about why she finds such comfort in those materials, and that is the presence of death in all of 18th century Virginia. I mean, you've titled your book, The Widow Washington. That's a reflection of the fact that she was a widow, but in order to be a widow, somebody's got to die. Can you tell us a little bit about how death shapes her world? Mm-hmm. Well, death was something that was everywhere, as you say, and I, I think even more particularly in the first 20, 30 years of her life, when when people were dying from the water, dying from mosquitoes, dying from malaria, dying from all kinds of things that they that they didn't understand. Some of that, a, a little bit the water, they sort of got that a little more under control, but some of that was just because they began to drink fermented alcohols and so on. But they just didn't die quite as often by the time Mary was in her 30s and 40s as they had when she was a child. But I think that it's both terrifying and numbing because the supports that you have in your life that you count on just fall away and you aren't old enough or prepared enough to take care of yourself. And so there's a kind of randomness to it. And you, if you're lucky, as, as Mary was in certain ways, when her father died, she didn't have to go to the orphan's court. She had her mother, who was a very capable woman, and she had two step half-siblings who were apparently affectionate and that they all got along well and so on. Then when her mother died, she was, again, as she was 12, she was incredibly fortunate to have a sister who could take her in and keep her living at a relative comfort, give her something uh, important to do so that she felt wanted and needed. And But the fear, the, the fear of this sort of random disappearance of, of people that are important to you and the, and the ways in which you were not encouraged to express mourning or to express grief over that, the stoicism that you were supposed to, as a child to, to sort of bear with which you were supposed to bear these losses, marked her, I think, for life. It made her quite rigid uh, in some ways. It made her probably not very expressive. She wasn't a big talker. After all, if what's on your mind is grief and you can't talk about it, you're unlikely to do much talking. It made her, I think, exceptionally focused on work and duty, uh, just keeping busy, keeping her head down, keeping hard at work so that terrible thoughts don't come to you, so that you just can keep going. And that really was probably her most profound characteristic as, as a, as a grown-up, a, a person who simply persisted in doing what she thought she ought to do and keeping her head focused on the, on the tasks. But I, I think it blunted people's, a whole generation of people's ability to feel secure, to feel maybe even to express very much feeling. Beyond that, I don't know. I haven't seen, I've seen all kinds of studies of collective trauma 
of people who have been tortured or murdered or, you know, done terrible things to. I've never seen collective studies of, of this kind of random trauma. Well, it's an interesting question. I can't think of anything either. It would be fascinating to see. I, and I know there's studies of death in the 17th century, Virginia, certainly, but then thinking about Tidewater plantations developing and all this kind of stuff is going on, how that is shaping. And one of the things that Mary has got going for her to at least teach her this stoicism or where she can derive and reflect on what's happening around her are these devotional texts you spoke of. What can you tell us about those? Where do, where do they come from and how do they fit within the religious culture of early Virginia in this period? And what lessons is she taking from them? Matthew Hale was pretty widespread. It was a book that was widely, widely read. He and the other authors that she enjoyed very much were tended to be sort of what we call latitudinarian. They, they were not sectarian writers. They were Anglican, but the material could have been written. Some of this could have been written by a Puritan as well. It's not, they aren't trying to convince you of a particular theology. They're trying to help you live a devotional life and be a good Christian. The main lessons, I think, and the reasons that these were such popular books was because they taught resignation. They taught in the face of bad things happening to you, what you were supposed to do, which was to think about God's will, to accept God's will, to understand that bad things happen without human reason. And you don't have to understand it. You just have to resign yourself to it and pray and and try and correct your own path. Make sure that you are not going after the wrong things in life. And the wrong things in life are those things which she saw her children going after in some ways, luxuries, uh, things that they didn't really need. And in George's case, honors and high office, which these books specifically denounce. I think George, who also had a copy of Matthew Hale by 1764 in his own library, would have said that he was doing his duty and that his duty was more expansive in a way to be defined more expansively than the duty as Mary saw it. Of course, Mary was a woman largely confined to the house and her and her farm. And her idea of duty was obviously confined to that to that area. I don't know that she ever would have agreed with George, but she certainly wasn't unhappy that he became president. I think that's probably true. I don't know about the consumption, the carriages and the clothes and the and the fancy architectural delights that, that her kids put into their houses and so on. It, it's hard to imagine that she thought that was a terribly good idea. But these books were, I think they, they were supposed to be mental furniture in a way. They were supposed to help you analyze problems and think through your behavior and understand what would be the ideal behavior. They weren't necessarily, you didn't necessarily expect yourself to, to do everything that the books suggested, but it, it was certainly a comfort to her who had very little guidance as a, as a young person to have this kind of advice and the promise of some reward for that in the next life. When you were working on this project, did you actually get to investigate the books themselves, the actual books that she owned? And, and I guess that maybe that's a, a part of a bigger question of uh, going back to what you, what you talked about earlier in terms of documenting the materiality of her life. What other kinds of evidence in that regard were you working with as you were thinking through this project? Well, I did, I did see the actual books. Uh, the Hale is really interesting because that was a book that uh, Augustine gave her. And her predecessor, the preceding wife, Jane Butler, who had been Augustine's wife before Mary, had signed it. And, and that Augustine gave it to Mary 
who then signed it with her own name and sort of her own pledge. And it became the most important book in her in her life, I, I would argue, is kind of fascinating because it suggests the interchangeability of women, of their roles, of what's expected of them. It also suggests the paucity of any kind of object. I mean, there was, there was just this one book. You didn't, just because it had belonged to your now deceased wife, didn't mean that it wasn't still a precious object in the book. And in fact, when you talk about materiality, it's, it's another really fascinating thing to, to watch uh, for example, the different wills and the different court cases that, that Mary and her mother were involved in. Her mother would sue over, you know, a rusty spoon and a bucket uh, that she wanted these things retrieved, that she was owed these things, or a, a one pig and a, a saw, you know, that was missing three teeth, uh, these, these kinds of... So again, the preciousness of material objects that just, there just weren't any. By the time Mary has has her inventory taken, Mary, the daughter, has her inventory taken. Her house is full of things. Still, not luxuries. It wasn't like Mount Vernon. It was pots and pans and, and uh, farm equipment and tools, some of them very, very old, some of them marked as rusted or dented or bent or, you know, whatever. So there was a kind of a familiarity that she had with these objects and a, an appreciation of the, of the material world. This is particularly brought home to me with fabrics that they had that Mary's mother, when she married Joseph Ball, his inventory included a chest full of extraordinarily beautifully defined different kinds of fabrics, a wool that's very soft, a wool that's coarser, a gabardine of this, of that, different kinds of cotton and so on. And Mary, the daughter, had the same appreciation and the same kinds of collection of ribbons and patterns and fabrics and so on. And George learned all of this stuff, too, and was quite a clothing designer himself, designed all of the uniforms. And when he ordered from London, he ordered very specifically the kinds of fabrics he wanted for a particular cut of a suit or this or that. So this intimacy with material objects that we we don't have anymore, we just throw things away. They don't, they don't work or we have too many of them or we just get rid of them. But this kind of the shaping and reshaping of clothes, the advice that that Mary and then George and Betty both give to their younger relatives to take a dress and re remake it into a, a pillow or you know or a blouse or whatever the uh, immense care with these precious objects. Yeah, as you were talking, I was just sort of thinking about when I was reading the book. In some ways, I identified with Mary because I, I grew up in the Midwest, and what you're describing sounds very much like the culture I grew up in, where tough get going, you keep your mouth shut, and you keep plowing forward. Uh, you save everything, uh, even you know washing the tin foil after you've cooked Sunday roast, right? And and you end up with a house full of stuff. It's in some ways I felt like I was uh, looking into a mirror uh, a little bit uh, <laughs> in a kind of you know weird way. But you know, these objects speak to the question of, of property ownership. And you know, as a, a woman in the 18th century, it's it's hard enough to control your own property. Marriage makes that extremely more complicated. Widowhood makes that complicated in different ways. What, what kind of property owner was Mary? And I guess both in terms of physical objects and, and farms like we've been talking about, but also enslaved people. Right. I mean, property ownership structures Virginia law, structured Virginia law in this period. And it comes directly from Great Britain's reverence for, for property. And, and the law is really so much about inheritance, contract, disputes over ownership, uh, suits and, and so on and so on. 
but for women, as of course you you said and you know, the only women who really could own property were were widows, and for them it was extremely challenging because it wasn't seen as legitimate. Women were really supposed to transmit property, not own it. The exception to that was enslaved people. Women, widows uh, could own enslaved people, but the inclusion of, of people in property makes the whole picture even more complicated and, uh, well, of course, awful. It contributes alongside the religious text that Mary was reading, which specified that the social hierarchy and the subjugation of people was just fine. You didn't have to do anything about it. The making of people and people's labor, if you're an indentured servant, seven years of you can be owned. It makes people fungible with things, of course, and it makes you not have to have any realization of their full humanity, which is a challenge for the whole society. It just changes the ballgame morally uh, in a way that's probably hasn't fully rectified. But in any case, it made Mary, I think, both a stronger person. Uh, she At three, she knew she owned land and she knew she owned people. And she knew to hold on to this as she grew. She knew in watching her, her widowed mother, she knew she had to be tougher than a man to hold on to her property and people and in, and in land. So that added another layer of callous to, to her participation in the world. It gave her a place where she could exercise her aggression and so on without having to think about it or restrain it particularly. I mean, this is not just true for her, it was true for any owner of enslaved people. But it definitely, I think, blunted her capacity to identify empathically with others. She's conscious of the fact that she's a property owner of both land and people from an early age. She knows she's, as you said, she's uh, intent on defending that property throughout her life and, and making sure it's used at least according to how she thinks it should be used. And But all this is bound up in the family that she creates and the children that she has. And what does family mean to her? I think family may have meant more to Mary than to somebody whose family started out a little more secure. I'm not not quite sure about that, but family meant everything to white upper-class Virginians as a rule anyway. They identified themselves first and foremost as members of an extended family. Uh, they talked about family characteristics and, and so on. I think Mary, particularly with the death of, of Augustine, became more and more, uh, sort of took on more and more the mission of uh, keeping his family connected, keeping it together, doing everything she could, as I said, to have these children make advantageous marriages to, uh, she was desperate to keep Betty near her. And Betty did marry uh, Fielding Lewis, who lived right across the river. She did everything she could for, for them in terms of looking after their health, sewing their clothes, feeding them. They, the family exchange did business together, particularly when times were tough. They sold each other corn at good rates. They gave each other Loans, uh, George particularly, lent a lot of money to his, his brothers. And George really became the patriarch, I think, that Mary hoped he would. He really headed the family in that sense and sort of took on the responsibilities of uh, leadership, of giving advice, of giving money, of trying to 
give some direction to some of his siblings. So Mary, I think from that standpoint, Mary was pretty gratified with what she had been able to to achieve. John Augustine, her third son, whom she uh, loved very, very much, probably right after George was her second favorite, and his wife, Hannah, were, she, she loved them very much. And they reciprocated in ways that I think she recognized. They named one of their children after her. The child died, but that wasn't the point. And Betty reciprocated with Betty and her husband Fielding reciprocated very, very generously and really took her problems as their problems and, and sort of behaved the way she kind of I think hoped they all would. They didn't, of course. And at a certain point when George writes and says, you know, you shouldn't be living alone. You should move out of that house in Fredericksburg and you should move in with one of us. And then he goes through a whole list of why she can't move in with anybody except basically Betty. And the ways in which George puts her off uh, over and over about her needs, I think must have been very disappointing to her. But he did uh, while he was alive, keep the family, that central bunch of family together. They splintered off in time, but uh, that was her project. And I think she, she was pretty successful. But as we're coming near the end here, I thought we might complete the revolution, you might say, by returning to something you said in your opening gambit, which is how Mary experienced the revolution and independence. What did those two things mean for her and her world? It's a really complicated question, I think. She, if we're talking about independence, Mary wanted it for herself, just as any Virginian man wanted it for himself, I think, in the sense that when she was a widow, she wanted probably equality before the law for herself. She wanted uh, to own her property without interference. She wanted the kinds of things that, some of which she was, she was able to have. She didn't feel, I don't, think she had any sense that the revolution was being fought for her when it when when the revolution itself formally actually happened it was in no way Mary's revolution she didn't approve of war she didn't think that that was a way to that was a way to behave i think unfortunately she did probably come around to the whig way of thinking when dunmore's uh, proclamation came out telling slaves to revolt against their masters and join the British. I think at that point, she probably thought, oh, my goodness, I hate the British, too. They're really evil, and they're telling our slaves to rise up. So I, th- I think her, her situation and her fears probably made her a Whig, although not a supporter of, of war as a, as a method of solving problems. I think disestablishment that came with the, with the revolution, the disestablishment of her church, was not welcome to Mary at all. Dislocation, the social upheaval, the indentured servants who were running away, the overseer who who was cheating her, all of these things that happened during the revolution were part of a sort of a social revolution that she was not at all interested in. It's a complicated question, but she certainly wanted her own independence and she certainly saw her mother fight for hers and uh, continued the fight. Well, Martha, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time with us again. We really appreciate it. Hope to see you again soon when uh, we can do things in person. That would be great fun. Thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer. 
Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 